Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to another episode of New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Zachary and I'm here today with Peter Lavelle to discuss his book, The Prophets of Nature, Colonial Development and the Quest for Resources in 19th Century China, published by Columbia University Press in 2020. Peter is Associate Professor of History at Temple University. He specializes in 19th century Chinese history with an emphasis on topics related to the environment, science, technology, agriculture, and colonialism. The Prophets of Nature covers all of these subjects, weaving them into a fascinating and richly detailed narrative tapestry. The book focuses on efforts by the Qing imperial government to harness natural resources across its vast territories. Their aim, to bolster state power amidst natural disasters, wars, rebellions, foreign incursions, financial instability, and a host of social problems. In other words, with calamity piling upon calamity, Qing officials and elites weren't just sitting around waiting for the end. They were actively looking for solutions and experimenting with new ideas. And they often focused their attention on the natural world and what it could offer to their project. A principal actor in this drama was none other than Zhuo Zongtang, who, in addition to his well-known military career, was also an avid student of geography and the agricultural sciences. During his career as a statesman, Zhuo pursued policies of development as a means to achieve various statecraft goals, including the restoration of livelihoods devastated by war and disaster, relieving demographic pressures in overpopulated areas, shoring up government revenue, and expanding territorial control over borderland regions such as Xinjiang. Zhuo and his contemporaries drew on traditional traditions of knowledge from across the empire, creating new institutions and practices of development and establishing new connections between China's borderlands and its eastern regions. What emerges from the prophets of nature is a fresh approach to understanding the tumultuous 19th century through the nexus of crisis, Qing colonialism, and the environment. I really enjoyed the prophets of nature, and I very much recommend it to anyone who's interested in any of the topics I mentioned above. So with that, I'm very happy to discuss the book with its author. So Peter, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Zachary. I'm happy to be here. So it's traditional on the network to ask our guests to start by introducing themselves. So maybe you can say a bit about your academic background and um, yeah, maybe focusing on how you became interested in Chinese history, uh, particularly Qing history and environmental history of China. Sure. Uh, I have a, uh, a BA from Grinnell College, and I got my PhD from Cornell University. And it was uh, really at these institutions that my interest in East Asian history in general and kind of Chinese history more particular grew. Um, after I finished uh, my undergraduate degree, I went to China to teach for a year um, in Jiangsu province. And, uh, you know, thinking about where we are in the world today with COVID, um, at that time, uh, I was planning to travel across China to see Western China and even go into Central Asia and uh, SARS hit uh, and it prevented me from making a lot of travels. Um, but 
you know, I was interested in exploring Western China and seeing it for myself. That didn't turn out to be the case, but I went on uh, to, you know, I returned to the United States uh, and went on to, um, you know, be able to study uh, courses about China at first in my hometown at the University of Washington for a year and then um, and then in my PhD program at Cornell, where I, uh, of course, specialized in, in Chinese history and was able to kind of um, think through the history of Western China more fully through through my research. Um, and so my my interest in, uh, you know, Xinjiang and Zhuzhongtang kind of emerged out of um, uh, prior studies of, of China at the undergraduate level. Uh, my um, kind of unfulfilled hope to travel to Western China and my desire to understand the late 19th century um, in a way that I think hadn't really been, um, in a way that hadn't been explored before, at least in the the types of uh, research that I was reading at the time. So that's a little bit about the background of my my academic work. Okay, great. Well, delving into the book, uh, I'd like to ask uh, maybe very naive question, but what what are the prophets of nature, and what did uh, Qing scholar officials mean by this term, and how how did events of the nineteenth century affect the way elites thought about about nature and the environment? So, the prophets of nature is a term or a, a, a phrase that I've translated from the Chinese uh, phrase the zhiranzhili. Uh, sometimes you see it in the document as uh, Tnd zhiranzhili, um, and so it comes from that phrase, um, but it really speaks to the way in which uh, Chinese elites, uh, literati, and officials were thinking about the potential for uh, what we might call natural resource development or uh, natural resource extraction. Um, You know, in English, of course, when we hear the word profit, especially in the 21st century, we think of financial profit. Um, And that's not necessarily the case. Uh, when Qing officials were using this term. I'm using the profit here in a more expansive way to talk about beneficial or advantageous use of, uh, of land, of water, of, uh, of, other, uh, of other resources, plants and animals, um, and so on and so forth. And uh, so when, when Chinese uh, officials spoke of the profits of nature, they were really speaking to the way in which these um, these resources remained to be exploited. They, the potential was there, but uh, you know, labor hadn't been applied to extracting them. Technology hadn't been applied to extracting them. And so, um, I, I see. I, I've seen this uh, term again and again in the documents when it comes to officials making a claim about um, using resources in a particular territory or a particular part of China. Okay, and uh, what about conditions, uh, uh, the background uh, conditions, like just to set the context, how did uh, uh, events of the 19th century affect how, how elites thought about uh, nature and, and what it could offer? Well, in thinking about um, the story of, of, of um, late 19th century China, and particularly Zhou Zhongtang's role in suppressing rebellion and then reconquering Xinjiang, um, it, it seemed to me that um, one of the ways that elites were talking about uh, resources it, it was it was spatially, and that mm. is to say that 
you know, we know China in the 19th century well as a period of, of crisis, territorial crisis, ecological crisis, financial crisis uh, for the Qing state. Um, and Qing leaders were oftentimes looking to the peripheries, looking at new territory for ways to, in a sense, uh, shore up the state or, or make up for those make up for those crises, uh, either by, you know, giving land to new settlers or finding ways to transform resources on the frontiers into uh, what was quite important for them, of course, which was was tax revenue. Um, and so there's a there's a way in which um, there's a kind of spatial vision of what the empire um, contains that, you know, officials saw was not being used or fully used that they could take advantage of to uh, reach their reach their uh, political goals, reach their economic goals um, and and um, succeed in in reestablishing uh, imperial hegemony um, throughout the throughout the imperial territory. Uh, I should also mention that w one other facet of of officials thinking about the profits of nature is the ways in which they thought about um, using uh, available technologies to get access to those resources. It wasn't simply about um, set, uh, sending uh, settlers to farm new land and or open up wasteland. Um, it was, of course, also about giving them particular tools, um, highly developed, for example, organisms, silkworms, mulberry trees, um, or particular uh, particular technologies of water control, and in using those technologies to, um, you know, further extract what they call the profits of nature, which here again is a kind of making better use of, of the land around them to, to increase uh, revenues for the state. Yeah, I really enjoyed that about the book that you focus on these, um, I guess you could call them very lo-fi kind of technologies. You know, this isn't, uh, you know, cutting edge stuff that you're really talking about here, but uh, still it's it's uh, technology nonetheless and employed in a, in, a, in a particular way. Yeah, it was important for me in thinking about the book to always, you know, have in mind, if, if I don't always bring it up in each chapter, to always have in mind... I think a more typical story of the 19th century, which is, you know, China's subjugation by foreign powers and China being the colonized country in a kind of expanding system of, of, of global capitalism, you know, emanating from Europe. And in that story, it seems to me for a long time, for many decades, historians have often focused on, you know, transfers of technology from uh, Europe or the United States to the Qing Empire. Um, and while you know those those types of stories are crucial to understanding what happened, I think they leave out this other kind of dimension of uh, what what technology means and what it you know what what function it had um, in the late nineteenth century, and and that is why I wanted to try to um, you know refocus some attention on uh, these everyday technologies. I recognize that, you know, in terms of kind of world historical changes, 
they may not hold a candle to you know the, the new technologies that were being brought into China at that time, whether steamships or railroads or telegraph wires. Uh, and nonetheless, if we, if we want to think broadly about the history of technology, we have to account for the ways in which uh, these perhaps somewhat more customary or more mundane or already existing technologies also played a role in the, the, the dynamics of, of colonialism in, in China. Uh, and in this case, it happened to be uh, late Qing uh, colonialism and not Western or foreign colonialism. Yeah, I thought that was a really fascinating reorientation that you inserted throughout the book. Um, and uh, yeah, very, very interesting way to think about uh, or maybe to slightly subvert uh, the familiar narrative about progress uh, in the in the 19th century as well. So I really appreciated that. But um, yeah, I wanted to ask about the maybe the um, the moral implications of, of how elites conceptualize this uh, their their ideal relationship between man and, and nature within this kind of utilitarian, somewhat utilitarian frame of of benefit. Um, did they think in in moral terms um, as we might today think about uh, um, things like sustainability or using the environment in a certain way, being right and proper and just? Did did they have a, a similar sense? Well, I think uh, officials in the 19th century, literati in the 19th century, had certainly an invested interest in um, seeing uh, communities, that is human communities, sustained over a period of time. And of course, the sustenance of human communities requires kind of sustaining natural resources over long periods of time. Um, on the other hand, of course, we, we know from looking at Qing documents um, that throughout the Qing period, uh, officials were often talking about uh, things like exhausting the earth uh, uh, and making full use of natural resources to the extent possible. And, and comparing that kind of um, um, phraseology uh, and that kind of language with what we know of how environmental history actually unfolded, certainly we we've come to an understanding that um, policies of, of colonial development, as I call it in my book, were quite, um, were, were quite disastrous for the environment in, in, in many dimensions. Um, so it's not to say that um, the, the recognition of, of a need to sustain human communities over the long time, over the long term, and, and, and the recognition of the need to sustain the resources to support those communities actually led to the sustenance uh, or, or sustainability. Um, uh, but it does indicate that I think Qing officials were, on the one hand, uh, aware of that need, but on the other hand, um, for, for various reasons, um, not following through on that. Uh, and of course, one of those reasons is, you know, these, these uh, disasters of the mid-19th century that threw things into turmoil uh, and seemed to require officials uh, to, you know, act uh, quickly to, um, uh, to exploit the resources that were available to them. Now, I should also mention that in, in, in the process of, of reconstruction, as I've mentioned in the book, um, Qing officials are very much committed to a moral vision of restoring order and to restoring settled agricultural communities as the kind of framework for, for understanding the relationship between the natural world and morality in the human realm. Because, of course, agricultural 
settlements, agriculture itself, is that kind of uh, uh, is that kind of system for creating, uh, in in their minds, that kind of moral community um, of of people in the Qing realm. Um, so that that's an, a, another important dimension, I think, of thinking about how morality functions in this. I don't go into great detail in my book about the kind of moral dimensions of this, but I think one could make the claim that you know remaking agricultural society is of course central to their vision wherever whether it happens to be in southeastern china or uh in the far northwest mm, yeah they i mean they might not meet our definitions of uh you know sustainability or whatever but they definitely you know had some grander vision in mind let's say and i think that did come out in your book especially as you talk about uh uh, the various statecraft goals that officials wanted to to accomplish, including you know sustaining human communities. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I would I would say that uh, Zhu Dongtang and other Qing leaders did not uh, did not enact policies that we might consider to be uh, sustainable or to meet some kind of definition of of conservation. Or environmentalism, even though I think a few scholars I've seen uh, have have made the claim that you know maybe Zhou Zongtang was a proto environmentalist um, and can be compared to, to to the environmentalists of the late twentieth century. Uh, I, I don't find that type of argument convincing um, because there was a clear commitment to you know using resources to the fullest extent possible. Um, and that, you know, when I when I say resource extraction, that doesn't always mean um, the most environmentally devastating type of 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 resource extraction. We tend to think about, for example, strip mining as that kind of resource extraction. And here, that I I don't mean that kind of um, you know just simply absolutely laying waste to a landscape to get wealth out of the soil, um, but rather um, you know using technologies and using uh, territories and especially individual parcels of land um, to really create wealth. And sometimes, you know, of course, agriculture uh, in that in that fashion uh, does have its own uh, negative environmental ramifications. Um, but it, it's not always the kind of worst dimensions of, of uh, environmental exploitation. Yeah, I, th I think those are important distinctions to make for sure. But uh, actually, I'd, I'd like to ask you at this point about your uh, protagonist, who you've mentioned already a few times, Zhou Zhuangtang. So I think many listeners will probably recognize uh, Zhuo as a, as a military leader. But uh, what role does he play in, in the story that you tell? Um, so, yes, I think most uh, people who have you know, studied 19th century history and know Zhou Zongtang as a military leader who suppressed Taiping rebellions uh, and then was sent to the Northwest to re repress uh, the Muslim insurgencies. Um, and that's how I initially got interested in his story because he was the, the military leader in charge of, of reconquering Xinjiang. Um, but in my story, he plays a somewhat different role in the sense that I use his um, his both personal history and his um, career history 
to trace changing patterns of uh, changing changing policies over the 19th century in regard to natural resources, um, and you know, using him as a bi biographical kind of framework for the research allows me to kind of overcome the tendency to to um, frame or frame research. Uh, in the 19th century I, as either before the Opium Wars or after the Opium Wars or kind of before the rebellions or after the rebellions. And, and that is something I, I, you know, had wanted to do early on. Um, and, as, and as I was studying Zhou Zhongtang and his work in the far northwest of the Qing Empire, there was another, there was another reason it, it occurred to me very early on that I, I, I needed to kind of use him and... Um, explore his influence on these policies more. And that is because um, for certain topics um, in late Qing history in the Northwest, it's actually quite difficult to explore uh, histories without, you know, relying upon Zhou Zhongtang as a source. Um, you find in Gansu province, for example, um, for those tumultuous years in the 1860s and 1870s um, because of things like destruction of archives, um, uh, local archives, things were so uh, 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 chaotic. Um, a lot of the a lot of the information we have about what happened in that period um, comes from Zhou Zhongtang himself. Um, and that that also goes for some of the policies in Xinjiang. Now, fortunately, in more recent years, there's I think there's more and more uh, archival documents coming out in large published collections, which makes it more possible to get beyond Zhou Zhongtang and his uh, his viewpoint, which of course is absolutely essential. Uh, and so I don't want to say that uh, you know using Zhou Zhongtang as a, as a resource is by any means, the kind of end point for thinking about late Qing history in the Northwest. Um, but I think he's a kind of essential, essential source for some, for some topics in this period. So that's another reason that, you know, I, I, I relied upon him in doing my work. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering, uh, in the process of writing the book, when it became obvious to you that, uh, Zhuo was, was your guy for this, like the, the, the one who would kind of provide a through line for for the the rest of the book was it obvious right away, uh, given what you said about the availability of sources around him, or was it a decision you made made a bit later? Focusing on him, I think I made I, I made that decision relatively early, um, but well, I should say, conducting research through his papers, I made that decision relatively early, but using his biography as a framework for writing and how I ended up writing the story uh, developed over the, you know, over several years as I was writing the dissertation and uh, being influenced by um, certain advisors and, and teachers in my graduate program and, and thinking about um, the value of narrative versus analytical historical writing, which of course aren't diametrically opposed, but you you can you can get different things out of different types of writing, and it seemed to me in this case um, it was there would be a, a potential 
potentially larger payoff if I used Zhu Zongtang as a kind of starting point for creating a narrative about what happened in the 19th century. Uh, and to be honest, I, you know, I approached the project, well, first of all, as a dissertation that needed to be completed, um, but also as, as an experiment in, you know, narrative style of, of writing Chinese history. Um, and of course there are models out there of that. Uh, and I drew inspiration from them uh, as well, but I, I just wanted to see what I could accomplish in this, uh, kind of format. Yeah, I think it worked really well. Um, I think that focusing on him and his career really situates the reader very nicely uh, between, you know, the macro level of major historical events and also the, you know, maybe the more ideational, ide ideological level of what people were thinking um you know what and what what were their motivations and then how did they play out in real life through the figure of uh Zuan and others so actually speaking of of him and his contemporaries what what kind of sources and and materials did they have access to in in order to learn about agriculture geography and 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 other subjects that fall under the the rubric of of practical learning yeah, and as I describe in, in the earlier chapters of the book, uh, Zhu Zongtang and other people of his generation were highly influenced by um, statecraft scholarship that was um, very much in, in, in high regard, uh, especially in Hunan in the early 19th century. Um, and this statecraft scholarship drew inspiration from the writings of uh, late Ming literati, uh, but also drew upon the whole kind of uh, corpus of uh, Chinese uh, writings going back to the very, you know, early imperial period and even the pre-imperial period uh, rela related to things like agriculture, uh, water control, uh, um, and uh, so on and so forth. Things that we take, you know, we, we would categorize on, uh, under, the, under the heading of, of resources or resource management. Um, of course, beyond that, Zhu Zongtang also had at his, his disposal uh, and something he very much relied upon was the scholarship um, that had been created about um, the kind of geographical expanse of the empire. Um, in the 18th century after the Qing conquest of, of Xinjiang. Um, and so as I talk about in, in chapter two, he was uh, very much influenced by the, the Xiyu Tuzhi, um, uh, and you know, worked to try to compare uh, what he learned from more recent geographical treatises like that one to um, earlier sources like the uh, kind of geographical compendia put together by uh, late Ming scholars. Um, and so we, you know, one of the things that's, uh, in, you know, I was happy to find in, um, in uh, writings about his early life was references to some of these, some of these texts so we can know very clearly what he was reading, if, even if he didn't leave uh, complete notes behind to let us know exactly, you know, what he gained from them. Um, and on top of that, of course, you know, thinking about the early 19th century, um, Zhu Dongtang was also reading compendia like the, the Jingshi Wenbian, uh, the Compendia of Statecraft Essays, 
um, which brought together some of these some of these earlier writings uh, in a collection that was very handy and easy for early 19th century men to and women to read. Yeah, were these were these uh, sources typical um, in in the education of aspiring elites at that time? Uh, very much so, uh, especially for uh, uh, 19th century scholars in in Hunan. Uh, I I haven't done a full uh, study of uh, you know 19th century scholarship throughout the Qing Empire, uh, and so I, I can't claim to speak for a kind of all places throughout China in that period. But we do know that this scholarship was quite um, uh, was uh, quite on the minds of a lot of young scholars who were looking for places in the imperial bureaucracy. Of course, there's also references to um, uh, in, in, in the writings of people like Zuo Zongtang, there are references to scholars who look on them with disdain for, you know, taking an interest in state statecraft scholarship. So it's clear that there, you know, there were others who um, didn't care so much for these types of topics. But um, it was very important for for Zuo Zongtang and other people of his of his generation to kind of think about politics through the lens of, of crisis and how to, how to solve the, those crises. And certainly he's not the first generation to do that. I mean, he, he pulled a lot of inspiration uh, from, you know, 18th century figures like uh, Chen Homo. Hmm. Okay. So there was uh, actually quite a bit of diversity and, um, and controversy even in terms of what one should study in order to advance into officialdom, you're saying. Uh, certainly disagreements, but of course the you know the the uh, scholars, uh, you know everybody had to you know bone up on the same texts in order to be prepared for the imperial examinations. Those those classic texts that formed the core, uh, the ideological uh, core of 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 imperial rule. Mm, right. Yeah. Um, but actually, on on uh, texts devoted to uh, agricultural subjects. Did you get a sense that uh, that these sources were drawing on uh, folk agricultural practices or what we could call maybe like common wisdom of the of the people as they were kind of incorporated into into knowledge for for scholars? Yeah, there was some of that. Um, one of the texts that uh, uh, was very inspiring for Zhou Zongtang was um, uh, was the text written by uh, the late Qing uh, scholar Xu Guangqi about agricultural administration. Um, and there, you know, we see a combination of um, source material from uh, previous, you know, previous agricultural texts, Nongshu, uh, as well as some reference to local conditions and local cultural practices uh, or local agricultural practices, I should say. And so it's really a combination of of sources of inf information about how one should go about using a particular piece of land for uh, for production and, and what types of techniques would um, yield the highest returns. Uh, you know whether that's uh, you know growing mulberry trees to produce leaves to feed silkworms, or or growing food crops um, to sustain people's lives and livelihoods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, also just to be clear, Zhuo himself was not averse to rolling up his sleeves and getting dirty when it came to learning about agriculture. Is that right? 
Yes. You know, of course, it's it's uh, he doesn't say himself that he gets down and dirty into the mud. Uh, um, so I'm not sure how, you know, he 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 more likely relied upon, uh, you know, poor family members, uh, uh, hired assistants to do all of the dirty work in the fields themselves, of course, and not not, not him necessarily uh, doing most of that physical labor, because as 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 we know, he very much aspired uh, to officialdom. He 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 uh, tried to pass the metropolitan examination, failed three times uh, and so had to um, because of that, find alternative work essentially and became a small time uh, tutor, local teacher, uh, and but then at the same time um, tried to allocate or, or I tried to gain get some land, uh, accumulate some land that then could support his family um, as another source of, of wealth through things like producing rice um, and other crops. And in, in owning that land, he did undertake certain uh, experiments. Um, but again, the writings aren't clear uh, about exactly who is doing what in, in, in regard to carrying out those experiments. Uh, I see. Okay. Well, uh, another major pillar of the story is the, the incorporation of Xinjiang into the Qing state. So can you describe how Chinese efforts to develop, how to develop Xinjiang changed over time? And uh, what did Zhuo and others hope to achieve there? Um, how were their ambitions shaped by events at, happening at the core of the of Qing, uh, Qing territory? So I think we can think about you know changes in um, Qing efforts to rule Xinjiang in a kind of very macroscopic, wide, wide you know through a wide lens, macroscopic scale. And one of those major changes, of course, was after the reconquest of Xinjiang in the 1870s, there was uh, a move to assert greater Chinese control over that territory by installing um, Chinese officials, uh, you know, down to the local level. Um, And this was, of course, a change compared to decades earlier, going back to the Qing conquest in the mid 18th century, uh, when it was primarily uh, Manchu and local Turkestani officials who kind of had a purview of local society. Um, after this period, of course, local officials were, you know, local Turkestani officials were still uh, very much involved in local affairs. Um, but this was really the, the first major time in which Chinese officials um, expanded across Xinjiang uh, in a network and um, did things like set up Chinese language schools to train Turkestani men in you know, Chinese language education um, and to train them in, you know, as, as something I talk about in one of the later chapters of my book, Chinese style sericulture. Um, um, and so it wasn't just, it wasn't just book, bookish learning that was being promoted. It was also kind of technical training um, at this point in time. You know, beyond that kind of wide-scale lens for viewing changes in Qing rule in, in Xinjiang, we can also talk about kind of more smaller, minute changes. And one of those things that I, I, I became attuned to in my over the course of my research, going back to my days as a graduate student and then later on, is thinking about fluctuating levels of um, interest in sponsoring Han Chinese settlement 
or other development initiatives. Um, one thing I found in, in talking in, in talking about the the project to uh, develop sericulture in Xinjiang in the 1880s is that um, there was a burst of activity around it, and then several years later, because of financial shortfalls and um, you know because of other priorities in eastern China, the level of funding fell, and you know state support. Um, fell away to, to a certain extent. And this is a pattern I think we, we see repeated uh, not only in Xinjiang, but in other, prov you know, other parts of, of the empire as well. Um, but in terms of Xinjiang, that, that fluctuating level of interest in you know, stronger support uh, and, then, uh, and then declining support um, you know, and then fluctuating over, over time, that, that's an important uh, pattern that we see throughout the 19th um, century um and and so you know at, at moments in the 19th century for example in the 1850s when when um the taiping rebellion threw central china into into turmoil uh we know that qing leaders in xinjiang uh, were very much uh, financially strapped and so they created new policies to, um, for example, transform horse farms into agricultural fields. And so, uh, you know, there's, to some extent, it's, it's kind of a, uh, what we might call a kind of um, phase of privatization of imperial resources by giving them over to, you know, settlers. Um, uh, but then there are other phases in which, you know, state support then surges back. And there's a kind of greater investment in um, in setting up you know military facilities uh, and other um, other systems that are are necessary for Qing control mm, yeah um, yeah there was this an important security dimension of interest in uh, in Xinjiang as well right that influenced uh, how how much uh, the the state wanted to invest or not in in the borderlands, is that right? Uh, sh certainly, there was an interest in, um, in maintaining um, security in Xinjiang. Uh, you know, starting in the mid 18th century and going all the way through to the 19th, uh, to the end of the 19th century. Um, but again, we see in you know in in the kind of security dimension, you know, fluctuating levels of of state support um, for for the security apparatus, because of course. Keeping large number uh, large numbers of troops um, in Xinjiang, um, especially if they're constantly on military rotation and not doing other things like farming, is very costly. Um, and so there were moments in time there were moments in time in, in which the Qing state, uh, you know, subsidized those um, those uh, military contingents to a quite high degree. And there were other moments in time when state support was, uh, uh, declined and, uh, you know, f soldiers were told uh, to go farm um, to provide extra resources for, for their very, you know, existence and garrisoning in that area. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I was struck in reading uh, the chapters about uh, Xinjiang that the, you know, at some points the qualities that made it attractive to elites were the ones that, that made it so difficult to operate there. So I think that uh, you can kind of see this hinge point and probably there were people 
making similar kind of cost-benefit analyses for how best to develop uh, Xinjiang and what could be accomplished there. Yeah, there was certainly always uh, the debate over, you know, whether controlling Xinjiang was financially worth it uh, and and whether it should be given up. And this, you know, this happened at a number of uh, a number of times uh, over over the period from when it was conquered in the mid 18th century uh, up through the 19th century. And we see this again happening in the 1870s as officials are debating um, you know, whether even Xinjiang should be reconquered. Is it worth it? Is it is it a territory that um, you know, needs to be retaken, or maybe it can be it can be dealt with in some other way that doesn't require huge uh, financial investment in the region. Mm, okay. Well, I'd like to shift back uh, for a moment to uh, reconstruction policies after the the suppression of the Taiping Rebellion. So, what were some of the challenges facing planners, uh, and and what kind of solutions did they did they employ? Well, I think for one of the main main things that, that struck officials as as um, in the in the highest degree problematic was simply the lack of people. Demographic decline in areas that had been ruined by fighting between Taiping forces and Qing imperial forces uh, left uh, many parts of eastern and central China uh, highly depopulated compared with decades earlier. And so in a most immediate sense, the policies that were enacted to uh, promote reconstruction focused on enticing people back to the land and having them resettle so agriculture could be restarted once again. And those policies um, were quite customary, common policies that uh, uh, were by no means new. So things like uh, providing startup capital in the form of seeds and plow animals and tools uh, and, you know, giving allocations of land and also uh, offering for a period of years, uh, two, three, even six years, sometimes preferential tax policies where uh, taxes uh, were in remitten, uh, uh, remission for, for a certain period of time to kind of entice people to, to um, use the land um, for production. Um, and so we see these types of policies being enacted in Eastern China. And then um, after the Muslim uh, insurgencies in uh, Gansu, uh, Shanxi and Gansu, and out into Xinjiang, we see them enacted again in those parts of the empire. Um, one of the reasons I was interested in, in you know, thinking about these these land reclamation policies is not because they were always effective or, you know, always uh, had huge ramifications for finance uh, immediately, but because I think the way in which, you know, historians have thought about the changing dynamics of the fiscal state in the, the late 19th and into the early 20th century, um, that, that, they have tended to focus on how over a longer period, the Qing empire kind of shifted its tactics of extracting revenues from the population. So, you know, the, the origins of commercial taxes, the legion uh, in the mid 19th century um, and onward into the 20th century really changed the major sources of revenue for the Qing state, along with, of course, uh, tax revenues in the, in the port cities. Uh, drawn from from the customs duties on items of international commerce, 
And so this, this story of kind of changing tax patterns, I think, tends to overshadow the fact that at least in this, you know, early initial period, um, the Qing, the Qing state officials like Zhu Zongtang were immensely concerned about the loss of agricultural production because agriculture was the mainstay of tax revenue. And, that, and that's why they focused so fiercely on getting people back to the land as, as quickly as possible. And again, it's not because it's not because the those policies were always effective or immediately effective. Um, but Qing officials, uh, you know, recognize that if you don't have agriculture, you don't have, you know, in a certain place, you're unlikely to have tax revenue, uh, and then you have trouble paying for things. And, and that would be problematic over the long term. So, Yeah, I think the, the predicament that uh, Qing officials and ordinary people found themselves in after the after the war was uh, re- really came out strongly in this chapter, the one you called Reclaiming the Land. Um, I really appreciated that. And I, if I can ask, maybe the, this, this uh, Reclaiming the Land is meant to have a bit of a double meaning because on the one sense, you do have Qing officials trying to reclaim the land for human beings after nature had kind of reconquered it in the wake of the, of the rebellion, right? Yes, uh, that's another dimension of land reclamation that I wanted to point to. Um, that is to say that there, there are more than human beings uh, involved in this story. If we want to think more broadly about environmental history, we certainly have to recognize that all sorts of creatures, um, you know, plants and animals are involved in this story of land reclamation. When we think about land reclamation, we obviously you know, often think about the humans clearing the land um, of animals and, and plants, you know, often for something that looks like a, a, a monoculture of one particular crop across a landscape um, to have that particular crop thrive. And certainly that, you know, in, in, in many cases, that is what Qing officials who were interested in reconstruction aimed to achieve. Uh, but what I found in in um, studying, you know, this uh, this immediate post-war dynamic is that um, non, you know, non-human creatures, uh, and and also their uh, wild creatures that hadn't been domesticated by humans uh, had really reclaimed that land for themselves. Um, and it, you know it's to be expected, I guess, because uh, when humans depart, uh, animals and, and plants return in the fashion that they are able to. Um, and so these these creatures reclaim the land, and you know, Qing officials sometimes describe these scenes more likely, I think, because of the the you know the the different interests in re- reportage. Um, I often found richer descriptions of these landscapes in foreigners' accounts of land um, ra- rather than, of course, Qing officials who, if they were writing to Beijing, were often interested in, in simply reporting you know, um, you know, what was happening and not providing a richer description of landscape. Yeah, okay. Well, that's actually a good point uh, to talk about. Um... Uh, other non-human uh, creatures in our story. So let's jump over to sericulture in Xinjiang. 
Uh, and just for those who might not be familiar with this term, sericulture refers to the production of silk and the raising of silkworms. So uh, first of all, why did Qing leaders focus on, on bringing sericulture to, to Xinjiang and, and the borderlands? Uh, what did they hope to achieve? Um, and how did how did they go about their plans? And um, what were what were some of the conflicts that they ran into? Yeah. So in 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 writing this chapter uh, and thinking about the late nineteenth century, it's it's very apparent that Zhu Zhongtang was interested in um, promoting sericulture in Xinjiang uh, as a way to um, further reinforce territorial control. Um, ultimately, you know, that's one of the main main goals that was one of the main goals of his his rule in that era is you know simply to make sure that once reconquered Xinjiang does does not have any more territorial crises um, and one of the ways he thought to do that was to promote sericulture uh, the and the the way he justified it to Beijing was to say that people in those uh, people in that border territory were uh, merchants from uh, Russia, Russian territory, and and um, other groups like Kazakhs were interested in um, in buying Chinese silk, but there's really no local silk production, so they actually have to travel far inside the Qing borders um, into central China to buy silk. So if we promote uh, a silk industry in Xinjiang, it will mean that what they want to buy is right here. They won't have to travel far inside, and we'll solve you know, that, that potential problem of foreigners traipsing through, through our territory. You know, that's only one, I think, angle of the larger story here. And that, that is the global growth of uh, market for raw and processed silk in the late 19th century. Um, clearly Xinjiang, to the extent that, you know, Xinjiang's geographical location made um, long distance overland transport um, quite costly. I don't think Zhu Zhongtang or other other Qing officials were under any kind of um, naive assumption that you know Xinjiang silk would uh, would sweep the world by storm and become uh, a highly sought after commodity uh, around the world. But they did recognize that the world market was booming, and you, you see this not only in, in you know the writings of Zhu Zhongtang, but other late Qing officials who are interested in figuring out how to uh, increase, as you know, as as they quite often said, the the wealth and power of the state, the wealth and power of China. And one way one way they identified to do this is uh, to you know ramp up the production of of highly sought after um, agricultural commodities, you know, that could, that could very much um, be sold to the world market. Um, and so that's the kind of broader context in which this program to develop sericulture was enacted. In terms of the kind of technolo technological and organizational side of, of the project, uh, in the late 1870s, there was already a pattern of um, in the post-war, post-rebellion phase of Qing officials going to um, northern Zhejiang um, because it was um, the most advanced uh, silk production region in the empire and sourcing, you know, tools, um, agricultural organisms, 
whether that's the silkworm or, or uh, mulberry trees and technicians from that area and then hiring them and taking them to a different part of the empire in order to kind of reproduce the success of the Jiajiang industry in another part of, of the empire. And we see this not only in, in Xinjiang in the, uh, you know, starting around 1880 and into the early 1880s, but in other, other parts of the empire as well, other provinces. So it was not necessarily unique uh, to Xinjiang at all. Uh, and that's, an, I think that's an important point. Um, but as I try to describe in the, in the chapter, one of the things that I think was somewhat unique was the way in which um, Zhou Zhongtang uh, and, um, and other officials um, had a kind of singular vision of what the mulberry tree meant and what its, what its use was for people. And for them, it seemed to be very much a, uh, it, it seemed to very much have a singular use as the organism that could support the life of the silkworm. By contrast, you know, as I found, um, local people, um, uh, Turkic Muslims, were accustomed to using mulberry trees in a variety of ways. You know, for for construction, uh, for building, and and for fruit. Uh, and the mulberry fruits being a kind of important local resource. Uh, you know, for food, for drink. Uh, which would then also have ramifications for material culture and cultural practices. And it, so in, in, in thinking about the, the late, the, the sericulture project that I, that I described in chapter six, I also wanted to get at some of the, uh, some of the tensions over the project by juxtaposing, you know, how local people thought they, you, thought their mulberry tree should be used and how Qing officials kind of had the singular focus on sericulture. Yeah, I thought this this uh, tension that you described was um, uh, really interesting. And <clears throat> you can really see different uh, epistemologies of, of how to use resources, what development might mean, um, and different ways to use, use resources in, in different uh, cultural contexts. Yeah, that's um, you know that's what I found in in writing this chapter and researching this chapter is that um, at the heart of it is a kind of different view of you know how a resource should be used and what in this case a particular plant means for local society and for for human life um, and you know I think. I don't think that was entirely lost uh, on Qing officials that local pe people uh, use their resources in different ways, but at the end of the day, it didn't matter that much to them to kind of preserve local practices uh, only in so far as it caused social turmoil and had the potential to create political problems for the Qing leaders. I think, did they really start to pay attention to that? Mm -hmm. So beyond those tensions, what were what were some of the outcomes of the sericulture program? Well, in the short term, um, you know, based upon the data that we have, which is by no means comprehensive um, or you know complete, um, in the Turpan Oasis, for example, we know that um, a a significant proportion of Turkestani households 
began to produce um, silkworm cocoons to be used in the processing of silk thread and the production of silk cloth. Um, and that, again, that's a, in a short term within a, a number of years in the early 1880s. Um, and so, you know, we can, we can come to some conclusion that um, technical training in sericulture and people's interest, local people's interest in maybe, you know, producing silkworms for this purpose uh, was made was made clear in their participation, um, and there were other cities around Xinjiang that also participated in the sericulture program. Uh, but we also know that um, there were various tensions, uh, including the tension over how to use mulberry trees, also in, in tension uh, the tensions in you know between local people and the sericulture bureaus, for example, about you know, what they should be paid for their cocoons, what um, the young Turkestani trainees should be paid for their labor in the technical bureaus. Um, and an additional kind of dimension is that the state's support for this initiative was not, it did not last beyond uh, a number of years. And that is because by the mid 1880s and certainly in the late 1880s, um, the Qing state told provinces and territories throughout the empire to uh, reduce expenditures on these types of technical training bureaus because of financial constraints imposed uh, by the need to spend uh, on uh, military defense um, along the Eastern seaboard. Um, so, you know, over the long term, um, remains uh, ultimately unclear exactly, you know, how much sericulture, uh, how much impact the, the sericulture uh, development program had um, and whether there were any long-term ramifications. We do know that th there's data to suggest that this was a kind of revived several times in the late Qing period. Uh, various officials wanted to kind of bring back sericulture and, and again, to kind of sell Xinjiang silk to Russian merchants uh, and to some extent British merchants. Um, uh, but uh, the, the larger longer term ramifications and certainly into the 20th century, uh, I think awaits uh, more research by other uh, other scholars. Okay, great. Well, Peter, I know you've spent a lot of time on this subject. Uh, what what do you think are some of the interventions of, of your research to uh, to scholarship of nineteenth century China? One of the things that I you know I wanted to work on in this book is um, to think about the Qing as a, still a colonial empire in the late nineteenth century. Um, I think we often, especially after the Opium War, tend to revert to the the thinking more about the Qing Empire as a colonized space by foreign empires. Um, and of course, that narrative is is promoted very heavily in some quarters, um, in national educational uh, programs, for example, in China, uh, and talking about this, you know, the story of, you know, China's subjugation by, by the West and by Japan. Um, and of course, there are there there are many 
reasons why historians should continue to explore the dynamics of foreign imperialism and colonialism in China. I, I think that's um, you know quite a valid way of going about thinking about late 19th century China. And yet, as I was conducting my research, what I wanted to do was to reveal some of the dynamics, uh, the ongoing dynamics of Qing colonialism in the late 19th century that often I think gets overshadowed by the larger story of, or the seemingly larger story of um, the relationship between Qing China and its, its foreign adversaries. Okay, great. Um, well, you hinted at this a little bit in your conclusion, but what, what do you think are some of the legacies of, of this uh, late Qing era development policy on, on the 20th century or into our own time? Yeah, as I, I, there's so much more to say uh, beyond the, what I've written in the conclusion about the 20th century legacies of, of, of Qing policies. And I, I, I certainly don't um, explore by any 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 significant depth the the kind of ethnic uh, and or racial dimensions of relationships between, for example, Han Chinese people uh, and and Turkic Muslims um, in in Xinjiang um, to understand those re relations. Um, but you know, I think one of the one of the ways to consider the ongoing legacy is to recognize that leaders throughout the twentieth century. Um, understood the importance of borderland provinces and territories in terms of the resources they held for people in the central provinces. And of course, that that is very much, it is arrayed in, in ethnic ways that are important to talk about. Uh, but spatially, that that dynamic, I think, has held throughout uh, much of the 20th century. It's that's not to say there weren't major changes in in you know demographics uh, or natural resource development in the 20th century. Clearly, there were, especially after 1949, in the way in which the the PRC has been able to uh, bring much greater state capacity to things like um, you know Han Chinese colonialism in in Xinjiang. Uh, and in other regions, far more people uh, from outside have settled there since 1949 than, than previously. Um, but I think the continuities are worth worth thinking about. And I, I'm certainly not the not the first one or the only one to to mention these continuities. But I think it's worthwhile to, to consider. The, the other the other thing that I think is is beyond the scope of my book here, but I think deserves more attention is the ways in which um, whether everyday technologies or these more kind of iconic revolutionary technologies like railroads um, had a role to play in uh, building the capacity for, for Chinese colonialism in the 20th century. Um, I, th I think there's a lot more to do in the history of science and technology and thinking about relations between center part central parts of China and peripheral parts of China and exploring, uh, exploring that spatial dynamic through science and technology. Um, and I, I really do hope uh, scholars will um, take up that research agenda in the coming years. Yeah, as you said, there's still a lot of uh, questions to, to ask. Um, uh, it's a very, very rich, uh, rich topic to explore. 
But as for as for you, what are you working on next? Do you have a? Are you going to continue in this in this uh, in this area, or are you moving on to something else? Uh, I'm currently working on a new book project about agricultural science from the mid 19th century to the early 20th century. And in a, in a sense, it reflects a kind of interest in following up on the, the story of agricultural development in China uh, and, and taking it into uh, the early 20th century. Um, but it also is, tr you know, I, in this new project, I'm also going to try to um, explore some of the ways in which uh, very late Qing officials uh, became interested in um, in botanical resources uh, to do things like combat famine, mm. and so it, it'll be an opportunity to think uh, broadly about you know the relationship between Chinese science and 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 you know science from from the West, um, but also the ways in which the disasters of the late nineteenth century, including for example the North China famine of the late 1870s had ramifications for the development of science in in China. Okay, well that sounds fascinating. We'll look forward to to reading it when the book is done. Thank you. Okay, well Peter, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a great discussion and once again for all of our listeners out there, I really recommend uh, going out and picking up a copy of The Prophets of Nature for yourself. So Peter, thank you again, uh, and take care. Thank you, Zachary. It's been a pleasure.